I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Don't cry for me, you damn commies. The truth is no one believes you. It's high noon for Wednesday, February 10th, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. Join the discussion thread at t.me slash be reasonable discussion. Or I'm occasionally on Gab, and I'm your moderator. And that's pretty much it. Legacy social media is for the birds. So it is the 21st full day of Barack Obama's third term, as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of America's worst families, and the father of a son that no one should want to take responsibility for, even though he's the smartest guy Joe Biden has ever met. It's also the second day of the second impeachment of Donald Trump, and this one is somehow potentially even more ridiculous than the first. If you'll recall, the first one was about something that Joe and Hunter Biden did in Ukraine and Donald Trump's efforts to uncover that. Because Joe Biden was busy selling American foreign policy to our foreign adversaries. That's what the first impeachment was about. You have any doubts on that? Go look it up. Don't have to believe me. The second sham impeachment, though, is about Donald Trump somehow inciting a violent insurrection that he did not incite and was not an insurrection. So I feel like I have introduced everything here. Oh, the one other thing I want to say in the introduction is sorry about the sound. If this is your first time listening, you're just going to have to bear with me for another maybe week, maybe two but not anything more than that. We're gonna get through this together, that's my point. So, did Donald Trump in his speech on January 6th incite the very violent riot? No, he didn't. And that's obvious and it's basically now admitted by the mainstream media and by Democrats because it would be physically impossible for Donald Trump to have done that as his speech was still continuing as the riot part of the day began. And there's some more interesting information for me to pass along to you before we get into the nitty gritty of the sham impeachment. So the incitement part's ridiculous. The insurrection part is ridiculous. Yes, there was a riot. Yes, there was some violence. Yes, they broke some windows. Yes, they walked around the hallowed halls of your citadel but they did not try to remove the government and install a new government. They didn't do that. There was nothing coup-like. There was just a shaman Viking guy and some of his friends, and then Black Lives Matter Antifa. But very, very interesting article this morning in Revolver.news, and the title of the article is MAGA Blood Libel. Why are they hiding the medical report? This is about Officer Brian Sicknick, and I'm going to read some of this for you. Last week, CNN was tactically baffled by a simple question that grows stranger by the day. Why are investigators struggling to build a murder case in the death of U.S. Capitol Police Officer Sicknick? The stakes are high. Officer Sicknick's death 
is the only purported death by a largely tourist crowd that was let into the building by police, stayed inside the velvet ropes, seemed at least partly there out of confusion for social media clout or just for the memes, and that even the New York Times conceded caused limited property damage. That's a far cry from murder. Yet MAGA is being blood libeled with a felony murder charge in the court of public opinion and at Donald Trump's impeachment, while potentially exculpatory evidence is silenced or sealed. As the Washington Uniparty mulls domestic terror laws over a MAGA bloodbath, it increasingly looks like MAGA may have been bloodbathed or bloodbathed. It's not really a real word, so hey, whichever way you like. Time is of the essence for the feds to release all evidence, damn the guilty, or clear the MAGA movement of these serious allegations. So why are the feds hiding the medical report? Narrative 1.0, the brazen lie. The day after Sicknick's reported death, depraved toilet paper company and full-time libel factory known as the New York Times jumbotroned a massive howler headline later confirmed to be a Judith Miller-level damn dirty lie. That headline was, he dreamed of being a police officer, then was killed by a pro-Trump mob. Narrative 1.0 absolutely saturated the airwaves, editorials, and social media. Every MSN outlet from USA Today to the New York Post to the Daily Dot repeated that Sicknick was bludgeoned by a fire extinguisher. Not sources say, not many believe, just a totally unqualified, unequivocal statement of fact. And an unforgivable shocker, the House trial memorandum itself, which sets forth the very impeachment charges for which the 45th president stands accused, names Trump liable for the insurrectionist that killed a Capitol police officer by striking him in the head with a fire extinguisher. Their source, the New York Times. But the Times left a real stinker inside this one because every claim they made, every detail conveyed, was a lie. And here's a passage from the Times. Then on Wednesday, pro-Trump rioters attacked that citadel of democracy, overpowered Mr. Sicknick, 42, and struck him in the head with a fire extinguisher, according to two law enforcement officials. With a bloody gash in his head, Mr. Sicknick was rushed to the hospital and placed on life support. He died on Thursday evening. Law enforcement officials now tell CNN that there was no fire extinguisher blow, no bloody gash, and no blunt force trauma to Sicknick's body when he died. Not only that, but it is increasingly unclear when, where, and if Sicknick was even rushed to the hospital. As it turns out, multiple hours after the protests had already concluded, Sicknick texted his own brother, Ken, that the very night he was basically fine other than being pepper sprayed twice, confirming he was safe and, quote, in good shape. Then an odd thing happened. The next afternoon, the Sicknick family began getting phone calls that Officer Brian Sicknick had been declared dead. The phone calls didn't come from the hospital. They didn't come from the treating physicians. They didn't come from the U.S. Capitol Police or the FBI or the DOJ. They came from media reporters. Certain privileged media personnel were evidently the first to receive sensitive information circulating among law enforcement officials that Brian Sicknick was dead. But then the story got stranger. In a dark, twisted echo of Monty Python's Bring Out Your Dead scene, it turned out Sicknick was not dead yet. The U.S. Capitol Police responded in a public statement late that Thursday evening that swirling media reports were untrue. Sicknick was still alive. Here's a tweet from Craig Kaplan. U.S. Capitol Police spokes. Media reports regarding the death of a United States Capitol Police officer are not accurate. Although some officers were injured and hospitalized yesterday, no U.S. Capitol Police officers have passed away. That's 5.21 p.m. on the 7th of January. One hour later, as Sicknick's family rushed to the hospital to see what they believed was their beloved Brian still fighting for his life, the U.S. Capitol Police issued a further statement. Now Sicknick was dead. But even that statement contained a curious detail. Ken Sicknick had been told his brother collapsed inside the Capitol building, then was rushed to the hospital. 
Wikipedia's entry on Sicknick still has this as the official story. But the U.S. Capitol Police's statement that night told a different story. He had returned to his office at the police division first. Sometime between Sicknick being fine, healthy, and back in his office on Wednesday night, and dead or effectively dead on early Thursday evening, Sicknick apparently suffered a stroke. The sequence of when and how that happened should be the easiest part of this story to put to bed. And yet we are being told to take this faith, or as the media likes to say, without evidence. I think that should say take this on faith. Then the story gets even odder. Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen says the DOJ will, quote, spare no resources in getting to the bottom of what happened to Sicknick. Yet well over a month after his death, precisely zero information has been disclosed by the DOJ, the FBI, the U.S. Capitol Police, the D.C. Medical Examiner, the hospital that cared for him, or the treating physicians. One full month after Sicknick's death, no autopsy has been released. For reference, autopsies take just two to four hours to perform, and preliminary results are typically available within 24 hours. Investigators are, quote, vexed by a lack of evidence that could prove someone caused his death, unquote. Authorities have, quote, reviewed video and photographs that showed Sicknick engaging with rioters amid the siege, but have yet to identify a moment in which he suffered his fatal injuries, unquote. Ominously, no findings from the D.C. medical examiner have been released. No announcements have been made by authorities about the ongoing process. The U.S. Capitol building is one of the most video surveilled buildings on planet Earth, and yet no internal video footage has been released by federal authorities or has been promised to be made available. Unannounced to anyone except incidentally in that Sicknick's memorial remains turned up in an urn instead of a coffin, Sicknick's body has been cremated. That means no further forensic analysis can be done to establish the cause or time of Sicknick's death. Why, one must wonder, would a family still searching for answers, who has no autopsy results, no death certificate, and no medical report, authorize a cremation? Did they? Narrative 2.0, strategic ambiguity and rhetorical conflation. With Narrative 1.0 turning into a total mainstream media hoax, a bald-faced lie the size and phrenology of Brian Stelter's head, the globalist American empire media is transitioning to Narrative 2.0, strategic ambiguity and rhetorical conflation. Sicknick wasn't killed by a MAGA mob. Sicknick died after sustaining injuries while physically engaging with protesters, per the Capitol Police. They've silently removed the by and added a while and a with, then reframed the entire clause in the passive tense so 90% of readers conflate what happened and moved on. But injured while physically engaging is like dying with COVID. Even if you died in a motorcycle crash, they count it. It's a trick. By using this framing device, the mimetic energy of narrative 1.0, the brazen lie, is preserved without readers hard forking to a more accurate narrative that describes what investigators really believe happened that day. Officials killed five people, quote unquote. But how exactly did they die? We explore this disturbing question in part two of this explosive series. So there's another article coming out tomorrow on Revolver that will further explain what's going on with Brian Sicknick right now. But today we also got a letter from the now resigned head of the Capitol Police. And in this letter, he describes what happened throughout that day. It's eight pages long, so I'm not going to read it. You can find it just by searching. The guy's name is Stephen Sund. But there's an, a real interesting part of his letter. And it's down on page five. He says, we were monitoring the actions and demeanor of the crowd, which at the time did not raise any concerns when we received word at 12.52 p.m. that a pipe bomb had been located at the Republican National Committee headquarters, immediately adjacent to Capitol grounds. Now, 12.52 p.m., Donald Trump is still talking, right? The speech went on for another 20 minutes or so after that. 
We responded immediately to coordinate and send resources to the scene, including a number of officers, officials, and a bomb squad. We also dispatched resources to look for other explosive devices, suspects, and vehicles. At almost the exact same time, we observed a large group of individuals approaching the west front of the Capitol. When the group arrived at the perimeter, they did not act like any group of protesters I had ever seen. Unlike other heated protests, these protesters did not simply congregate to angrily voice their grievances. As soon as this group arrived at our perimeter, they immediately began to fight violently with the officers and to tear apart the steel crowd control barriers, using them to assault the officers. It was immediately clear that their primary goal was to defeat our perimeter as quickly as possible and to get past the police line. The mob was like nothing I have seen in my law enforcement career. The group consisted of thousands of well-coordinated, well-equipped, violent criminals. They had weapons, chemical munitions, protective equipment, explosives, and climbing gear. A number of them were wearing radio earpieces, indicating a high level of coordination. Given these factors, it was clear to me at 1 p.m. that the situation was deteriorating rapidly. I mean, without further speculating, we have to admit that there is something extremely odd about the pipe bombs that were planted the night before being discovered at this exact moment when that crowd was approaching and resources were actually drawn away from the place that they were most needed to deal with the crowd. That also sounds absolutely nothing like any MAGA crowd any of us have ever witnessed. And now I know the commies will be like, well, those MAGA crowds are always violent. Remember in 2016, there were always fights at the Donald Trump rallies? Well, first off, that's not really true. It's an element of confirmation bias, like most of what the left believes about Donald Trump. They saw clips here and there. The media went crazy on each one of those clips, which gives the illusion that the thing was happening much more often and much more seriously than it actually was. Yes, there were people stirring things up at Donald Trump rallies in 2016. Those things happen in any group in public. They happen at concerts. They happen at sporting events. There was just a fight like last night or the night before at an NBA game. That's not unusual. Security handled it. They got them out of there. That was it. But that wasn't the narrative. The narrative is that Donald Trump's supporters are violent. But if Democrats and the media and social media want to pin these random outbursts of violence on Trump supporters as a whole, then it absolutely is fair and necessary to discuss which side the majority of the political violence in this country actually comes from. And those commies in the media won't like the answer because it's their side. Violence all last summer, all last summer, every single night, over 100 nights in a row in Portland. There is still right now violence going on in Portland. They are trying to uh, breach a police station in Portland as I record this. This is right now, <laughs> February 10th. George Floyd died, I believe, May 26th of last year. So this is a full eight months later, and we are still giving Antifa license to do this kind of stuff and pretend that this is about racial justice, that they're solving racism by destroying shit. That's not what it is. But just as the media feeds the narrative that Trump supporters were violent, in 2016, this is what the Democrats and the media are doing right now with this impeachment. I mean, surely they know they're not going to convict Donald Trump. And if they do, I mean, I would be, I would be shocked and that would be a preposterous outcome. But I don't think it really changes the real world for us very much. They're saying that Donald Trump wouldn't be allowed to run in 2024. And I guess on some level, they imagine that that's real. But it's not. I mean, that's the goal. But they have 
no justification for doing this. And again, the chief justice isn't even presiding over this thing. It's not a real impeachment. It's an opportunity for the Democrats to rehash this same narrative in front of a national audience. And of course they don't realize this because they never realize it, but they are running a real risk here of looking absolutely ridiculous. Now I've already watched, what time is it? It's about four o'clock on the West Coast here right now. So I've watched roughly five to six hours of this thing. They had a big break for dinner where it was supposed to be 45 minutes, it was like an hour and a half. Maybe the Democrats just don't need all their time because saying the same things over and over again with a different corrupt Democrat congressperson doesn't get more interesting. And the corruption in the Democrat Congress people is actually really interesting. Eric Swalwell was sleeping with a known Chinese spy and still sits on the intelligence committee. That's how much Nancy Pelosi cares about the country. Ted Lieu is a real rough case. And if you don't know about Ted Lieu, go on a search engine that's not Google and poke around by searching Ted Lieu, Adam Schiff, Ed Buck, and see what you get. Might uh, change your mind about who this Ted Lieu guy is. And I've actually met Ted Lieu before. I'm not sure if I've talked about this um, on the podcast. Maybe I have, but I met him at a, uh, a screening during the final season of Game of Thrones. It was like an official like HBO friends and family screen. And I ran into him. He was talking to like one of the creators of Game of Thrones or whatever. And he introduced himself as Congressman Ted Lieu. And I was like, oh man, you are such a tool. It's just like, don't introduce yourself that way. You know, always be campaigning. Is that what it is? Like you think you're gonna impress me? Maybe he does impress people with that. I don't find it impressive. And he's on TV so much saying so many dumb things that like the facial recognition that everybody is already gonna have with him kind of gets stamped out. Like, dude, you if you're really popular and people know who you are and then you automatically say who you are, you really look like a douche, but check Ted Lou out. And then you've got Stacy Plaskett, who actually received campaign money from Jeffrey Epstein and <laughs> declined to refuse the money. She also had a weird leaked nudes scandal a while back, and that stuff is strange. With those instances, there's always a little more to it. I think we've all kind of smartened out of the phase where we believe that somebody's phone got hacked. But again, that's, you know, maybe that's nothing. And then I'm, you know, that's not a smear of a person. There are people who do that and it is what it is. But they did choose a rather odd set of impeachment managers. Swalwell. Lou and Plaskett all have some strange, strange stuff going on. Getting money from Jeffrey Epstein, being buddies with Ed Buck, and sleeping with a Chinese spy are not little things. Those actually do matter. And before we get into the details of the impeachment, there's two other things I want to mention. One of them is that you should look up an affidavit from a man named Thomas Caldwell, who's a former FBI officer with high level security clearance, who is one of the people involved with the quote unquote insurrection in the planning and execution of it. He was initially called an oath keeper, but doesn't happen to be. The FBI should not be trusted by anyone. They have proven it over and over and over again and have not had any better opportunity to prove it than the last five years where they had the Russian collusion hoax, the Mueller probe, and the Ukraine impeachment of Donald Trump, where they had Hunter Biden's laptop in their possession and sat on it, even though it contained exculpatory evidence that would have rendered the impeachment of Donald Trump moot before it even started. But the FBI sat on that. Why? 
The FBI should not be trusted. There is more going on here with this quote unquote insurrection than a bunch of Trump supporters showing up for a rally and then all hell breaks loose. That's the story they would like us to believe. It just doesn't happen to be true at all. And then just a note on Louisiana's Bill Cassidy, who did the old flippity floppity and decided after declaring that the impeachment was unconstitutional, that now it's constitutional and he's more than happy to sit and hear it as a very impartial juror. I don't know if you remember this, but before the January 5th Georgia runoff, I said multiple times that this runoff was not important. I was on the Lynn Wood side of things saying that it actually didn't matter if Republicans went out and voted in this election. And it would actually send a better message to the party if they didn't. The reason I said that was twofold. One, because the Democrats can steal whatever they like at this point. So it wouldn't matter. And it would just cause more frustration on the right. But the other reason was there are already too many turncoats in the Republican Party. There was no majority, even if we held those two seats. And by we, I don't even mean me and other Republicans. If the Republicans held those seats, because I'm not a Republican, I'm independent. And I don't associate myself with the current GOP in any way. But even if Purdue and Leffler had won, the margin would be razor thin. And all it would take is the king of Romneys, Mitt Romney, or any of the other Romneys to vote with the Democrats, and the majority goes bye-bye. We already have six of them saying that this sham impeachment is constitutional, even though the chief justice isn't presiding, which is literally written into the constitution. So anyone who thought that there was gonna be some Republican majority, some stalwart there against the Democrat fake president and the Democrat fake Congress, that was always wrong from the beginning. That's why I didn't care. And I think that now we're seeing that that was right. So, Jamie Raskin, good old Jamie Raskin, kicks off the day's events. And as usual, the Democrat case is extremely light on facts and light on reasoned argument and heavy on emotions and theatrical nonsense. There have been multiple instances today of fake crying, or like trying to cry, or the little waver in the voice that tells everybody just how very scared you were. Jamie Raskin called Trump the inciter in chief. He said that what happened on January 6th and Trump's lead up to that by denying that the election was legitimately held and legitimately decided was the worst betrayal of the oath in history, drama queens. He said Trump was singularly responsible for inciting the attack. On December 12th at a rally, he said Trump praised, encouraged, and cultivated violence by saying, we have just begun to fight. What? Remember, Jamie Raskin is the guy who was already calling for Trump's impeachment before Trump was inaugurated. Jamie Raskin and all his Democrat colleagues have absolutely no qualms with telling their supporters that they need to fight, fight for something, never stop fighting, keep on fighting. We won't give up the fight. Stand up for your rights. Uh, December 19th, when Trump tweeted out, be there, we'll be wild about the January 6th protest, the Stop the Steal protest. That is now being reframed as encouraging violence. That was a call to arms in their interpretation of it. Jimmy Raskin said that 
Trump brought on a rampaging mob that laid siege to the Capitol. Laid siege. When I hear that, I don't think a bunch of Antifa like jamming riot shields through a window and then taking selfies in a in the Capitol. I think of like the Battle of Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings. That's what storming a building looks like. Like <laughs> they didn't have just a uh, thunderstorm of arrows raining down on the Capitol. No one was getting hot oil poured on their heads from massive cauldrons. There weren't sword fights. There was just some dorky Antifa people causing problems like they do everywhere else. And they're showing these videos. It's crazy that they actually think because there are some MAGA hats on some people that everyone's just going to believe them that Antifa didn't have anything to do with this, that it was just a bunch of Trump supporters coordinating violence. How are we supposed to believe simultaneously that there's a mob, a crazed mob, as they would call it, a rampaging mob of a million people whose only goal is to get into the Capitol and murder congressmen and senators, and they do say that in this impeachment trial today. They're trying to say that the number one goal was breaching the building and getting in there and finding Pence and Pelosi to kill them, among others. And of course, where do they get this information? Well, they get it off anonymous message boards. They go on the Donald.win. They go on uh, 8kun, which is the Q message board, but they would call it a violent white supremacist message board. And in fact, Stacey Plaskett called it X-Kun, and I don't know what that means. Very excellent detailed work there. But that's about as substantial as all the rest of their evidence today. All the evidence they are showing is video evidence that someone self-recorded inside, some security footage here and there, but primarily focused on the people in the building running and hiding as they barricaded their doors. Isn't it odd that so many people were allowed to breach the Capitol and so few of the people who were supposedly targets of this had any issues? And I'm not trying to make light of the fact that they shouldn't have been in there in the first place and that people should just be able to go to their jobs and work without having to worry about any threat of violence. I don't think that I would like to be forced to evacuate a building. I also think that I would look around myself and be like, yeah, there's nothing wrong. I mean, I'll go with you if you want, but I think it's okay here. <laughs> but that's not what we're told. So their evidence is self-shot video and then stories from media, not quotes, not direct evidence, not even people's stories. It's op-eds in the media and articles in the media that describe what happened. And they're using quotes from op-eds to tell us what the story really was. That's insane. I mean, I could go... That would be like going and trying Dick Cheney in The Hague for war crimes and using someone's opinion in the Daily Coast. That would not be admitted. And Liz Cheney, of course, would be very, very sad that her dad could ever be talked that about that way, even though he's totally responsible for that. And then the rest of it, is just an emotional recasting of what they always like to call lived experience because their actual fears now count as evidence 
And evidence of what? Because what they're supposed to be showing is that Trump incited an insurrection. But they're not showing that. They're just showing us that some people who are called by them, Trump supporters, were saying violent and inflammatory things online. Now, everybody who's in internet forums outside of mainstream social media knows that the conversation has a different tone to it because the context is different. People are more free to tell off-color jokes or say inflammatory things that they don't mean. That's what trolls do. But using hyperbole and triggering commies is not the same as making legitimate real-world violent threats. And somebody tweeting about how this or that person deserved to be tried for treason and executed is not a death threat, not by any definition. This is nothing more than a show. And my real concern is that this show isn't even for the purpose of getting Trump out of office, obviously, because he's not in office, so they say. And it's not even really to make sure that he can't run again, because him not being able to run again, what could be a bigger admission that not only did he win in November, but that he would kick their ass in 2024, too? What they're trying to do is label everyone who supports Donald Trump as a terrorist threat so that they can change the laws, just like they did after 9-11. This is a civil rights crisis in the making, and it's being led by Democrats who pretend to be the defenders of civil rights, even though their history does not show that at all. It's only their rhetoric that shows it. They imagine themselves to be for the worker, to be for the little guy, to be defending minority communities. None of that is true. If it was true, their results would be different. The Democrats, the Uniparty, are set up to serve corporations and the wealthy and people like them. They are set up to serve a cultural point of view that keeps them in power. We need to stop pretending somehow that the Republicans, especially Trump Republicans, are the party of big business. There is no part of MAGA that is the, par- is the party of big business. That's the Democrats and the Obamis and Romneys. And yes, communists can like big business too. It's not quite communism. Maybe fascism is a better term for that. It's a combination of a state-run economy with big business as their partners. Yes, even in those societies, there are still opportunities for certain people who toe the party line to be chosen by the leaders to be the wealthy people. That is, until they stop towing the party line And then they're put out of commission. But back to Jamie Raskin, who apparently thinks he is an excellent writer. He's not. I mean, the the whole crew of the impeachment managers are all still saying the big lie, the big lie, the big lie, that there was election fraud. That's the big lie. They're hearkening back to Joseph Goebbels. His phrase. And that's what they're trying to pin on Donald Trump and MAGA. It's lower than low. But Jamie Raskin decided to say that officers were impaled and bludgeoned. Impaled? Like someone rode a horse through and they were carrying a fucking lance? And they skewered you like a shish kebab? Oh, no. Well, then he didn't get impaled and bludgeoned. Who was that? Who was that? Is it Sicknick? Because he very clearly did not get bludgeoned. That story is a lie. He accused Donald Trump of expressing support for the enemies of the United States. Really? 
Which enemies did he do that for? I can tell you which enemies Joe Biden has given comfort to. In fact, we know them. I say them every day. And he still does it. Raskin called it a kaleidoscope of sadness, terror, and violence. What? Marauders punched and hit and kicked. Oh, no. He told a story about a nameless police officer, apparently a black man, who at the end of the siege, which I I guess we're supposed to believe the Capitol Police pushed back and defeated. I mean, that's what we have to believe, is that the people that didn't have enough people to stop anyone from coming in, in fact, they let them in, and then, now that it's being reframed, guided them through the halls to keep Mitt Romney and other Congress members safe, other senators safe. He led them through the building so that they wouldn't go toward the congressmen and senators, basically using himself as bait, just sacrificing himself at the hands of the marauders. Strange that they didn't actually do anything to him, isn't it? But so one of the officers, after this long day, was sitting and kind of just composing himself after the horror that had just taken place. And he claimed that he got called the N-word, and I'm not saying he didn't. That's totally possible. But he said, is this America? And Raskin really wanted to hammer this one home, which is interesting because I remember a specific video from last year, I believe it was in New York, where some little rich college kid who was maybe trans or just maybe wanted attention, but was prancing up and down a line of police officers outside of a building. And he was telling a black police officer there that he was a traitor to his people. And by the way, the prancing ballerina was not black. But he called the officer Black Judas. Where was Jamie Raskin then? In fact, where were any of these Democrats the entire year last year talking about this violence and destruction? It makes what happened at the Capitol look like another day at the office in comparison. But the whole point here is that they're saying that Donald Trump's goal was to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And when all of his legal and ethical and legitimate options ran out, the only option remaining was violence. And so he decided to promote violence. That's legitimately what they're accusing him of. But Donald Trump didn't try to do that because Donald Trump actually had the ability to create real violence. Donald Trump could have had the military shut things down if he wanted. Why? Because the military is on his side and answers to the commander-in-chief. Why else? Because the military has overwhelming, irrefutable, complete evidence that the election was a fraud. And we're going to see that eventually. I 100% believe that. Could I be wrong? Yeah, I could be wrong. I think that's a real outside chance, though. And anyone who's going to bet against that is really just betting against our military's ability to protect the country from cyber warfare. And that would be a very sad place for us to be. Now, they continued talking all day long about how the marauders had weapons. But I've watched a bunch of video of this and a small like nightstick shaped stun gun and a baseball bat are about the only weapons that anyone has seen or mentioned. They didn't go in there with guns. It's not because they didn't have them. It's not because they were scared. So why didn't they go in with guns? I mean, what they wanted, right? They were all coordinating. 
thousands of people coordinating this attack to take over the Capitol and they didn't bother bringing real weapons? What? Are we meant to believe that a million patriots supporting Donald Trump don't have access to weapons? Of course they do. But they didn't bring them and they didn't use them. And the deaths were on the side of the Trump supporters. Some specifically killed by the Capitol security. Where are the weapons? Now, Congressman Jonah Goose from Colorado declared that Trump had the power to stop the insurrection, but didn't. Well, it seems to me, I remember Donald Trump putting out a statement on social media not long after this whole event had started that said quite clearly for everyone to go home peacefully. And they did. So he did stop it. There's no doubt about that. Again, are we meant to believe that the same security force that allowed these people into the building and couldn't hold them off, then somehow overwhelmed them eventually through what? Strategy? They surrounded them? The security forces weren't gunning people down. People turned around and left. That's why the event ended. And it didn't take very long to end. And then not more than a few hours later, the joint session of Congress was back in the chamber going about their business. Was the chamber destroyed and defiled? No, no, not really. There's video from inside the chamber of people just sitting down, checking their phones and computers. My dog making a rare appearance on the podcast. But so we're meant to believe that Donald Trump didn't stop it. We know for a fact that the security force that allowed them in didn't stop it. That, I mean, that's got to be clear. So we have to understand then that the mob stopped itself. And why would the mob that wanted to take over the government then stop itself. They literally stopped and turned around because Donald Trump said to, and because the vast overwhelming majority of them never wanted any violence and never wanted to go into the Capitol in the first place. Denying that is a denial of the facts that we know. There is no way around that. Then the goose lied about the mob killing a Capitol police officer. He surely must have been talking about Sicknick, but we just went through that. And that is not the case that the mob killed Brian Sicknick. His family agrees with the assessment I just gave you. So then they move on to the cases of election fraud. And their only goal was to convince everybody that none of the cases, none of the claims had any validity. There were no dead voters, no underage voters, no out-of-state voters, no votes being switched, no nothing. There were no instances of election fraud. And so they said that all his claims were thrown out. Well, that's flatly untrue as well. So they rerouted everything away from Donald Trump's speech that day. Now, the case is about everything. Everything that Donald Trump has ever said and done is what has led the mob to attack the Capitol. That was incitement. But Donald Trump's supporters are far less extreme than the far left. The far left who has caused all this violence. The far left, and by the way, even the normal left, the Obamis, spent last summer justifying violence in the streets, horrific violence in the streets for two reasons. One, they didn't see the extent of it. And that's the most charitable I can be to them. But the other one was that they are afraid to say anything if the issue they're talking about 
has anything to do with race. And the fact that it was Black Lives Matter Antifa causing the problems meant for them, they couldn't take the risk of calling it what it was, horrifically immoral violence all summer long, the destruction of people's lives. And all these congressmen and women were repeating the language Liz Cheney used when she cast her vote in the House in favor of this impeachment. She said that he summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and incited the mob. But that's not true. He did it. He did summon people to the Capitol of the United States. I mean, not the Capitol building itself. That was to make their voices heard so that a fraudulent election would not be certified and confirmed without anyone paying attention. They would have loved that. Democrats would have loved that. To just sweep it all under the rug, say on December 14th, nope, that's the end, even though it wasn't. That's what they wanted. So he refused to let that happen. What they're trying to do now is to reprise the whole stand back and stand by thing from the debate. They want to blame this on the Proud Boys. They want to call all of MAGA, all Trump supporters, just like the Proud Boys. And the sad thing is that the people that they aim this message at repeatedly just believe it. They just take it hook, line, and sinker. They don't think twice about it because they have been conditioned to believe that. They believe everything that Donald Trump says is a lie, and they believe that Donald Trump supporters are violent. So anything that reinfirms the narrative they already have in their head just seems automatically true. It has no, the facts have no relevance whatsoever. This is the same thing with the coronavirus. They already believe that it's scary. They already believe that masks work. They already believe that lockdowns and restrictions work. So they don't care about the facts. They don't care about the fact that now everyone knows hydroxychloroquine works. Well, it worked the whole time and you were wrong the whole time, but have you adjusted your belief system? No, you haven't. That is extraordinarily dangerous in an open society and they don't care. They don't care at all. They are comfortable and happy with their beliefs. The facts literally don't matter and this is from the party of the science. Now, we're told by Nagus, I believe, if my memory serves, that Donald Trump had a duty to stop the violence. And that's exactly what he did by releasing his message, except social media took his message down and they made it unshareable. How is Donald Trump able to stop the violence if he can't communicate with anyone? And whose choice was that? Was that Donald Trump's choice? Of course not. And they told us that he put out that video message three hours after the attack started. Also, blatantly false, just not true at all, not even close to true. How many lives would we have saved? Joe Nagus asks. What rhetoric, Joe? What an interesting question. How many lives could we have saved? Well, had the attack not happened, then Hillary and her friends wouldn't have had to kill those two Capitol Police officers who definitely committed suicide. I don't know why I said the Clinton thing. Brian Sicknick may or may not still be alive because it seems by actual evidence that his death is largely unrelated to what happened. Would the person not have gotten trampled? Sure. Would Ashley Babbitt not have been shot? Well, that's an interesting one because she was shot by part of the security force, a guy whose name now seems to be David Bailey. But he didn't need to shoot her. His life was not in danger. She was merely climbing on a door. So her life could have been saved just by the security forces doing their job well. Of course, that was too much to ask. So why don't you tell us, Joe, how many lives could have been saved? Because I'm pretty sure the number is maybe one or maybe two. And if the number is that low, 
you can just describe the number for us and describe exactly who you're talking about so we know, you know, for the sake of honesty. But why do that when you can say that the senators, just for confirming the vote of the American people, the very legitimate vote, were at threat of moral peril? That's how far this is going, by the way. I'm sure most of you have not been watching this thing. That's why I really want to pull out these quotes and tell them to you. I hope this is not repetitive. I mean, it's repetitive to watch because there's not that much that happened that they have to talk about. The evidence doesn't lead to the conclusion they want. So they are repeating the evidence in different narratives. They went on for a while about the bus that Trump supporters tried to drive off the road, even though that isn't at all what happened. And we know on a factual basis that that's not what happened. This story has already come out and been analyzed. It is not what they say. One of the worst points of the entire day was Joaquin Castro bringing up Donald Trump's tweets from last May on, where he talked about how this would be the most rigged election in history. And Castro's like, well, how could you know that about an election that hasn't happened? Well, how did I know that, Joaquin? I have eyes and ears and an adult-sized brain. I know how mail-in balloting works. I know what the Carter-Baker Commission said about mail-in balloting. I know what European countries say about mail-in balloting. I know what Canada says about mail-in balloting. Every open-minded person who has looked at the issue at all knows that mail-in balloting, especially the unsolicited universal mail-in balloting, is the single best way to destroy the integrity of an election. So it doesn't take a time traveler to understand that the election would be the most rigged election in history. He knew it. Because you commie assholes changed all the rules to rig it in your favor. And you're still trying to do that. And we know that because HR1 is basically trying to take all of the things they did collectively in all the different states, the Facebook stuff, all of it. They're trying to implement all of that on a nationwide basis. They're trying to retroactively legalize everything they just did. It's an admission of guilt, and I don't know why it hasn't been seen as such by anyone but people like me, I guess. And I don't mean like special people. I mean the people with our point of view collectively. This entire charade is like the rest of the last five years. All of their arguments depend on the people hearing them not knowing anything, and then just accepting whatever it is they say, because they know that no matter what, Trump is bad, Trump is a liar. You can really do anything you want after that. One of the congressmen, I can't, congresswomen, I should say, uh, I can't remember if it was Plaskett or Dean, but she said, for the first time in more than 200 years, the seat of our government was ransacked on our watch. Actually, now that I say it, I totally remember it was Dean. Apparently, she hasn't heard of the May 19th organization who literally bombed the Capitol in 1979. And who was it? Why? Susan Rosenberg, who sits on the board of Thousand Currents, the fiscal sponsor for Black Lives Matter, so that Black Lives Matter can hide all of their money. They are rewriting history. They are reframing history because they know that their target audience doesn't fucking know anything. It's actually difficult to explain just how insane some of this stuff is. They've spent a lot of time focusing on how this attack was coordinated and premeditated. That is a complete departure from the original argument that Donald Trump had incited it with his speech. And some of that, amusingly enough, happened because Donald Trump started speaking an hour later. I really, really wonder if they would have gotten the narrative they wanted had Donald Trump started on top. He started an hour later than he was supposed to. 
And that made a big difference in timing on this whole thing. Had he started an hour earlier, the people at his speech literally would have had time to walk down to the Capitol and be part of this. They would have actually been able to carry out their argument, at least as far as a physical possibility goes, had Donald Trump started speaking when he was supposed to, but he didn't. And they went in anyway. And one of the funniest things is they were talking about how all of these MAGA mobsters had been sharing blueprints of the Capitol grounds. But a breath later, they start talking about how the marauders were inside the building searching for the Senate chamber. So which is it? Which is it? Again, this is how you can tell that what they are arguing has nothing to do with the facts of the case. They are trying to hammer home a narrative based on their target audience's preconceptions about who Trump is and who Trump supporters are. And then the small clips of video that they saw that day and in the days since and following the narrative since. Because the things that they're saying not only don't make sense on their own, I mean, they can't, they're totally unsupported by facts, but they actually defeat one another. And this is, it's, it's so common for Democrats, man. Um, so I'm gonna wrap this up. I, I started recording um, while uh, David Cicilline was going because he's honestly insufferable and I just didn't want to get this out too late. I'll probably still watch it. It is going to be such a chore to watch eight more hours of this tomorrow. I, I honestly have no idea what these people are going to even say because they're not that creative. But now they're at the point of just having to stretch a very small amount of content that supports their narrative into a really long narrative. It's like Almost every Netflix show, almost every Netflix show should be five episodes long instead of 10 each season. And by the time you get to the end of the season, you're like, oh, wow, so many things happened that didn't need to. How did that show get so boring so quickly? Oh, well, it's because they made it four episodes or five episodes longer than it had to be. That's what's happening with the Democrats right now. I don't know what they're going to do tomorrow, but it is going to be so boring and so tedious. And the worst part of it is, honestly, that it is, I, I, I could pretend to be like a Democrat right now and say it's, it's physically painful, but it's very, very frustrating to watch people just lie without any conscience whatsoever and know that their target audience is dumb and ignorant enough to lap it all up. And that is super fucking annoying. So I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns do not work. And Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting, or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Please follow the podcast on Instagram and Parler at I'm Your Moderator. Soon I'll be up on Rumble 
with a video aspect. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the show, I have a Substack. I'm your moderator.substack.com where you can donate or you can donate at anchor.fm by searching Be Reasonable with your moderator, Chris Paul. I hope to see you soon. Back out on the rain. Acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!